Welcome into the Autzen Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition of the podcast, Monday of the week. Uh, it is Mailbag Monday, and we are into the month of November, and with the month of November becomes the playoff talk. I think that's kind of where we're leading off with this podcast. Absolutely. Probably the only place to start. We'll note that some of you may be listening to this at some time on Tuesday and the rankings will be out. You can kind of disregard some of this stuff, but at the same time, I think it has to be spoken on at least the next day or so, just because it is where many people's minds are at. And the way Oregon continues to win football games, it should be where people's heads are at. So the first one comes from at the zero winter. Do you believe AB can lead us to a college football playoff win if he continues to stay hot? I honestly believe if the D plays great, we like we know they can, and the offense continues to finish drives, and the Ducks look like a scary team to face anyone except for Georgia. Hashtag Um The one thing I will know is Oregon would need help, A, maybe to even get in the playoff, B, to try to be the two or the three seed. If there are the four seed, they will be playing Georgia, and that's a that's no bueno. That's not a matchup anybody feels very good about. Um, to the original point in the question, I mean, they've beaten Ohio State already. And Ohio State is a team that's certainly in the discussion. So we know the high end of this team is capable of winning games like this. Um, I don't think what we saw against Ohio State was the best from the offense or the defense that we've seen all season either. I think Oregon has gotten better. I think Ohio State has clearly gotten better, which is why the narrative has shifted to, oh, maybe these teams that mating up in Columbus in early September doesn't matter very much, which I think we, we agree is ridiculous and absurd. Matt had a tweet on Sunday that I think captured the moment well of why even play these head-to-head games, but um, I digress. But I, I mean, I think if AB plays the way he played and the defense plays at its absolute best, they can definitely compete with the best teams in the country. Um, I also think like if it's Oklahoma, another flawed team in a two to three matchup, like some of this is just matchup related. Like I'm trying to think of what it would be like, like if it's Oklahoma or Cincinnati, even Ohio State, who they've already beaten. Yeah, I think they play their best they can win. I think Georgia just feels like a really, really tough team to beat. And I know the, the question even includes a stipulation of maybe not being able to beat the Bulldogs. So um, if they can play A-plus football, I think they can compete with everybody, which is what we've been saying all season, which was what made it so frustrating when they didn't play even close to that. And they were, you know, eking out wins over, you know, California and, you know, a close game with Arizona and, and, and whatnot. So I don't know. Like, is, have you guys' opinion shifted? I mean, we did just see the best offensive performance of the season. It wasn't the best defensive performance. Nobody would argue that. But has our mindset, I guess, has our mindset shifted at all? I guess I'll go first. Um, I, I think when Oregon plays like they did offensively the last two weeks and we get a average defensive performance, when I mean average, you know, just what they typically are this season. I think Cal or Colorado is probably on the bottom end of that, but they've been so good the last couple of weeks. It's, it was bound to happen to have an off day. It happens. Um, but when the offense plays like they had the last two weeks, I think they can they can hang with any team in the country. Can they beat any team in the country? No. I, I, I would have a hard time picking them over um, Georgia. But mm-hmm. 
outside of that, I don't think there really is another dominant team. And knowing that this team has gone to Columbus without Kayvon Thibodeau, without Justin Flo, without Drew Mathis, and win that football game, I I think they could they could beat some of these other teams. Is it going to be a seven out of ten times they beat Alabama? No, but that's the beauty of a college football playoff. You just need to beat them once and you move on. Yeah, to, to answer the question of do you believe AB can lead us to the college football playoff? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty true. I think this team is very talented and, and can get there even if AB doesn't play as he did the last few weeks where he's played his best football of the season. Um, but that's, that's the plus side of this is that Anthony Brown is playing his best football of the season. And I'm writing about this in my machinations column, which by the time anybody's listening to this, it'll be up. But it seems as if Oregon has either turned the corner on offense or is continuing to turn the corner on offense, meaning they have found something that's really vital to how they can play and they still have potential to go. And that's kind of the, the angle that I see this as. Um, ever since C.J. Verdell went down against Stanford, they've kind of changed their entire offensive philosophy in my book. And while their power offense and, and their rush game is still there, it can be. We saw it against Colorado with Byron Cardwell. And, and although Travis Dye isn't having as much success as he did against Cal, I guess especially against UCLA, um, he's still such a red zone threat that he's – Still a very vital part of the team, but with Byron Cardwell's emergence this week against or last week, excuse me, against Colorado, I think it's really important that they have a second running back. And while Oregon's defense didn't play great against Colorado, if you go back and rewatch the game and rewatch Colorado's scoring drives, it's mostly a miscommunication error on the back half of the def- of the defense where. Uh, Brian Addison, who's not an everyday starter and hasn't played safety for, for too long this season. Well, he's played it before, I, I digress. But yeah, it's a miscommunication. And it, honestly, if if Bennett Williams were, were healthy or if Steve Stevens were healthy, I don't think most of those Colorado scores happen. And that's the plus side of this because Colorado did, it, did their all to make sure that Oregon's defensive line was out of the game, try to take them away completely. But if you rewatch and on on plays where Oregon's defensive line had a chance to rush the passer, they got there. And you know, give credit to Brendan Lewis for Colorado for being mindful of that and having real poise in the pocket and making good throws. But you know, this defense can perform at a high level, and we've all seen that. We saw that against UCLA just two weeks ago. But I do feel like. Oregon heading down into the most into the toughest stretch the stretch of their schedule is they're they're kind of peaking. And I think the offense has more in the tank too, which is a very welcome development considering where they were just a few weeks ago at Stanford. So Oregon obviously they need to continue to win out and they'll probably need some help down the line. But the way they are playing now is a college football playoff team. I want to include in the hypothetical some of the injury stuff because, in theory, by the time a semifinal would be played, there are maybe some guys that aren't available right now that could be back. I'm not going to suggest who it would be, but you think about this team maybe being healthier. The flip side of that would be the bad injury luck they've had and what kind of injuries might they sustain going forward. I just think it needs to be said because this season has been so 
I think impacted by a, a play here, a play there where a player goes down and is out for the season. You think about the number of players, like it's over a dozen, I think, that are no longer, we think, able to play for the rest of the season. And then there are a few players that are kind of in that, maybe they get back in late November, maybe by December. Mm-hmm. And if you talk about the college football playoff semifinal, and I think it's January, like what, January 4th or something, maybe that gives you the opportunity to actually get closer to full strength. But again, the flip side is that also gives, it seems like a team that's snake bitten by injury, more time to get more snake bitten by injury. So I, I, mean, I, I don't bring that up to be overly negative or positive, but part of me does think some of this is like, if Oregon has no injury issues on its roster right now, like I think they would be in a completely different spot. But the reality is you're talking about key players on both sides of the football that are just like unable to play um, for extended parts of the season. So, I mean, that I just think is an aside worth noting. All right, next one from at Johnny the K. What is the most difficult upcoming game for the Ducks and why? This is a really tough question for me because the conference is so darn up and down. Um, there have been, I think, I would say this, like over the last three weeks, my opinion of who the second best team in this conference is has shifted three times. And all three of the teams I thought or perceived to be the second best team are teams that are still on the schedule. Like, I would have told you going into the Oregon State game that maybe Utah was the toughest game on the schedule because I thought the Utes may be the second best team in the conference right now. And then Oregon State wins. And I go, well, I guess it's the Beavers. They're the most impressive team in the conference. And then they lay a total stinker against Cal. And meanwhile, Washington State, amid all of this chaos, has won four straight in the Pac-12 right now and might be Oregon's biggest competition at Autzen in about a week, uh, or I should say two weeks. So um, it's it's your head is spinning with this conference. Um, I will say I don't expect this upcoming game to, quote unquote, be the most difficult opponent they play just based upon the results we've seen from the Huskies. They did just have a win over Stanford. I don't think anybody who watched that game comes away overly impressed with the way Washington played throughout that game. They did make the plays at the end to win it. Stanford, I think, really mismanaged the clock and and honestly some Mm -hmm. really strange tactical decisions made. But like I'll probably like cut this the upcoming game off as the best opponent Oregon plays, but it's still a really tough rivalry game that is almost right. always pretty darn competitive. So like that one can't be crossed off. Um, I'll probably still land with the game in Salt Lake City though, just because I think they're pretty clearly right now positioned to win the Pac-12 South. Oregon is pretty well clearly positioned to win the Pac-12 North. They both take care of business going into that game. It could be a situation where we know fully that that is going to be the preview and like the first matchup of the Pac-12 championship game in Las Vegas, where that's the Pac-12 North and the Pac-12 South. Like things could enough could take place by the time that that meeting happens, where that's already known to be the outcome. So I'll go that game, but I will also say like it's any of these games I think could qualify just because the conference is so up and down right now. I think. Um... Oregon's schedule has like flip-flopped a bunch in terms of, oh, that looks like an easy win. That looks like a tougher win. That could be a trap game, what have you. Because at the beginning of the year, we were talking a little bit about how the Washington game could be tough. Uh, It's a rivalry game. Oregon should win, but it's up in Seattle. We're talking about the Washington State Cougars maybe being that trap game, but that's a game Oregon should should win convincingly. Um, Oregon State is a is a game that yeah, even though they lost last last year to the Beavers, like 
Oregon just is by far the more talented team. They should they should win that one at home. And then just a couple of weeks ago, it, it was Washington stinks. They're horrible. They're not going to do much of a push for Oregon. Washington, uh, both Washington schools are bad. They, they shouldn't be any kind of fear in, in either of those two games. Um, Utah is really struggling. Uh, and, and then Oregon State, wow, they might be the best team in the conference. And, and while it's at home, you don't want to say that it's it's a automatic win. It, it's going to be tougher than expected. And now, like, Washington State's won, like, what, four games in a row? Um, that game all of a sudden feels a lot tougher than expected. Washington is at 500, and they're going to come off a big win at, at Stanford this past weekend before this week. But I think Oregon's toughest game remaining is going to be one of its two last at Utah. Um, we'll see what they look like um, on on offense and on defense and just kind of who they are. Um, but I, I'm going to pick Oregon State. I, I, I think the Beaver offense, even though they looked just horrid against Cal, I think they are the toughest offensive team left that Oregon has to face. And they run a system that can kind of exploit Oregon's aggressive play on defense, a lot like how Colorado did. Um, They've got statistically and maybe probably talent-wise the best running back in the conference in B.J. Baylor. Um, I just think this Oregon State game is going to be tough and – it's going to come down to uh, the last game of the year, I think, to, to really dictate how the season plays out for Oregon. I think this is a tough question as well. Um, I think that Washington this week is going to be probably the second hardest just because it's a rivalry game. You're on the road. It'll be on, you know nationally televised, all that good stuff. And obviously Washington hasn't been what they what people expected them to be this season at all um, in the few games that they've won. It's all, it's been rather close except for Arkansas state. Um, but for me, I think it's still Utah. I know Oregon state is, is a good team this year. They deserve some more national praise, but that'll be, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, every week in the Pac-12, like you guys have been saying, has been just pandemonium with people losing that you don't expect to. Uh, but I still think Utah is, the second most talented team in the Pac-12. And that's, you know, saying something because they've had some games where it's like, what, what are we doing there? And ever since they moved, made the move, well, and really have a choice because Charlie Brewer left, but Cameron Rising to, as their starting quarterback, they've, been, they've played a lot better. And their offense has been something to keep an eye on. Um, I don't think they're nearly as talented as they were in 2019. If we got into this hypothetical Pac-12 championship game, no, um, I agree. <clears throat> I think their offensive line is actually super susceptible. And if Oregon and Utah meet in the Pac-12 championship game again, I think that could be like a KT 2.0 explosion. Um, that's it's just the, the Pac-12 is so strange. There's no obvious answer. I think obviously the best team in the Pac-12 was Oregon, and I don't even think it's close. Yeah. I mean, or, the Pac-12 hasn't had a team ranked in the AP for two full weeks now. Uh, they only had one <laughs> other team other than Oregon receive votes, and that was Utah. I think they had 11, from what I remember, which isn't a good sign. And 
I, I don't know. It's such a weird, such a weird conference and such a weird topic. It's obviously Oregon's last couple of opponents are some of the best in the Pac-12. So you can kind of just take your pick. And Oregon State's going to be a tough one to end the season. It's going to be presumably if Oregon continues to play how they're playing for like all the marbles for the Ducks and the Beavers can play upset again, which they love to do. So that'll be a tough one as well. But for right now, I'm going with Utah. I think that's just going to be the toughest game they have left. I think it felt going into this season like it was a little bit of a back-heavy schedule, but I don't think we thought it was this back-heavy because yeah. I think that in, yeah. in, in theory you can look at this and go, like, they might be playing the four toughest games of their season upcoming I, that are not non-conference play. I mean, I think UCLA is still probably in the discussion there, but mm-hmm. other than that, like, they're playing what you would consider to be the class of the conference, which, again, is really hard to define because from a week-to-week basis, you just have no idea who's going. Like, we were sitting here on our preview show saying – there's no way Washington State beats Arizona State. And by like the half, you were kind of like, there's probably no way Arizona State wins this game. So yeah. and that just speaks to how bizarre this conference is right now. And we thought, hey, it's probably a, it's what a great edge on the schedule that Oregon doesn't play USC and Arizona State. And now you're kind of going like, I wish Oregon was maybe playing wish, those, yeah. one of those teams rather than Utah. Um, or even rather than, I mean, obviously they have to play all their Pac-12 North opponents, but maybe rather than like Washington State or Oregon State. So um, it's a weird year from that regard. All right. I third think- one. Just real quick, I think it's a good thing for Oregon, at least, to play all these teams down the stretch because they are the toughest Pac-12 teams. And when you're fighting for a college football playoff opportunity, you do want to prove to a point that you can beat those tough teams. And obviously, the, a cupcake schedule would be great. Like if they, I know, if the Pac-12 decided to not do a nine-conference game season and they had like Bowling Green in Week 11 or something like that, like the SEC does, but for Oregon, I think it's important that they win out against the best opponents. And, and the Pac-12 best is certainly different than any other you know, conference in the country. But I think it, if they continue to win, I think it'll help their position in the, in the playoffs even better. The only problem with, with Oregon's – because I agree with Jared. Like they're going to play the, the league's four best teams down the stretch or three or you know, four, maybe the five or six best teams in the league. But but the only problem with Oregon's schedule down the stretch and the, and what he just touched on with the nine game conference schedule is the best team that they play right now is a five and three Oregon State team. Everybody has at least three losses on their on their schedule uh, on their record. Excuse me, that Oregon has to play the rest of the rest of the way. Washington State um, and. And uh, I'm thinking of the Washington both have four and losses and Oregon state and Utah both have three. So the league, not having a second top 25 team in the rankings mm-hmm. is just brutal. Cause there's, there's no other game left on the schedule that when they play Oregon, whether it's in the conference championship game or in a week, whatever matchup, you can say this is a, a definitive, you know, quality win. There, there's no more definitively quality wins out there for Oregon. They need one of these teams to get hot. And I would also say it really hurts the conference that all of these teams we're talking about at the end here lost non-conference games they shouldn't have. Like Oregon yeah. State, and if Oregon State had somehow beaten Purdue, that would really have helped the league. Utah lost to San Diego State and BYU. Washington State lost to, I think it was, was it Utah State? Nevada. I don't, Nevada, Utah State. Utah State. Yeah, I think Cal beat Nevada. Like 
Mm-hmm. Um, you run through this. Washington obviously has the terrible loss to Montana and the loss to Michigan. Now, if that was a little bit more competitive, you could say, okay, it's not a terrible loss because Michigan's pretty good. But like collectively, these four teams we're, we're, we're talking about have really bad non-conference resumes, and that just hurts the perception as well. So I, I agree. You want one of these teams to maybe like if you, if you could have Oregon State and Utah and Washington State, let's say, like all just not lose like almost the rest of the way except for when they play each other, that would be helpful because it would be. I think it would be very very beneficial to have one of these teams be a eight or nine win team at the finish line because you're at a spot. Well, actually, that's the best that all these teams can do is eight in the regular season, assuming Oregon wins out. So um, mm-hmm. it's just a really unfortunate setup from a from a Pac-12 perspective. All right, let's get moving here because we're 20 minutes in. We haven't even got to the third question. All right, from B a deck 93 predict which freshman will have the greatest offensive impact for the remainder of the season. My money is on Byron Cardwell. Hashtag Ots and audibles. Um, the player who's probably going to play the most snaps is Terrence Ferguson. He starts at tight end, plays a lot. He's in a rotation, albeit with Maliki Matavau and Spencer Webb and DJ Johnson, who, by the way, is playing a lot more tight end than he had previously. He's, he's honestly playing a lot more offense than defense now. Um, very much a specialist role on defense. So I'd say Ferguson will play the most reps. I kind of agree with the point made here that from an impact perspective it will be cardwell because i think you're going to need a second running back to be productive for the rest of the season here that doesn't mean troy franklin or terrence ferguson who i think are probably going to play more snaps aren't going to be valuable but you need a second running back and we saw how impactful and important it was to have cardwell running this last weekend against colorado and how that really just sort of changed the dynamic i mean every time he touched the ball it was a big run they can continue to get some production out of him or Seven McGee, you know, one of those true freshmen. Um, shoot, we'll throw in Trey Benson, who's pretty clearly the fourth running back um, out of that group, I would say, right now. Um, I think that would be big. So I, I actually agree with the the way the question is presented. I, I do think it's it's Cardwell, and I'll, I'll include McGee as a – they just need production out of that second running back. So if you want to use those as like a combination pick, like I'm fine with that. Just, it's, you know, it's one of these freshman running backs needs to – or will, I think, have the greatest impact down the stretch. I agree. I think it's Cardwell. I, I think he's going to have the opportunity to have the most touches um, on offense among the true freshmen. I, I think Ferguson and Maliki will certainly play more than Cardwell, but I just, for whatever reason, the tight end position hasn't garnished a lot of receptions the last month or so. Um, and I, I just think Cardwell is going to be a guy that it's clear after the first <clears throat> After Verdell went down, Cardwell was the first running back in the game. Uh, and then against Cal, uh, he was used the most. And then um, against UCLA, he was used the most. And then against uh, Colorado this past weekend, he was used the most again. So I, I think it's Cardwell. And I don't really think uh, there really is an, there's another option out there, personally. Cardwell's the easy answer. I'm going to go with a different one. I think it's Troy Franklin. I think it starts this first half against Washington because of Johnny Johnson's absence for his lame targeting penalty. Yeah. I don't know if you guys watched the replay. It's not a targeting. Um, I did. It was, it was a, it's everything that's wrong with the targeting call on that play, but go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I, again, I, I wrote about this in my machinations column where which we'll get to in the next question, actually, I'm looking at it. 
the offensive line, the change in personnel that happened against UCLA has provided Anthony Brown with an unbelievable amount of time in the pocket. And with that time in the pocket, Anthony Brown has the ability to set his feet and throw. And we've seen Oregon take shots down the field and over the middle of the field, which has caught Anthony Brown into trouble earlier in the year. I think that's mostly due to the pressure allowed earlier in the year. Now that he has some time in the pocket, he can set his feet. He can throw. He has a gun for an arm. He can make almost any throw when he has the time. And now he has the time. So you're seeing Devin Williams get open over the middle of the field. You saw Troy Franklin get open in the middle of the field for his touchdown pass. Uh, Anthony Brown missed him on a second almost touchdown pass uh, later in the game. But again, he had time to break free from a defender. And I think Troy Franklin's one of the most talented wide receivers Oregon has in the football team. And you've seen him get a lot more action in the last couple of games, either in the screen pass or just over the middle. But I think he's going to come open down the stretch. And I think he's going to really help Oregon's offense again. Next one from at Tosh Myers. I love this question, Tosh. Was moving TJ Bass to left tackle the most important lineup change this season? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. I mean, this brings me to a thought, Matt. We had this conversation, I think it was after the Cal game maybe, where we were talking about, gosh, it seems like all of the pressure Anthony Brown gets is from the left side. I, I remember yeah. you bringing that point up and me being like, I can't really argue that. And then you go watch it. It's pretty accurate. They had a hard time protecting Anthony Brown on that left side. Um, they moved TJ Bass over there, and now for two consecutive weeks, he's played mm -hmm. last week against Colorado almost exclusively left tackle. Against UCLA, they had to shuffle things around a little bit. But, but for the most part, he's been playing left tackle. Um, Anthony Brown's had a much cleaner pocket yeah. every game, both those games. Yes. And I think this is a subtle move, and I'm happy that Tosh brought it up because I think TJ deserves a lot of credit. You see a guy play left guard, and you figure he's kind of limited to guard center. And I know, I know Mario even said when TJ arrived prior to the 2020 season, like he could play guard or tackle. We hadn't seen it yet at all. And I had no, like, to me, if someone asked me, what's the, you know, asked me a couple of weeks ago, if I said, hey, if someone said Georgia Moore maybe isn't the answer at left tackle, and, and, they, and you asked me what's the solution, I don't know if I would have, I would not have pointed to TJ Bass. I'll put it that way. So, Kudos to the staff for figuring it out and moving him there. I think obviously some of this does have to do with the Forsyth injury and Jackson Powers Johnson being out and trying to reshuffle things. But I think they've kind of landed on a really subtle, important move here um, that I'm happy again Tosh has identified. And I, I just think Bassett left tackle is the way you roll the rest of the year, even when Alex Forsyth comes back. I also want to like, as a kind of honorable mention, I agree Like to his question of, is this the most important? I think it is. An honorable mention answer here is is how well Ryan Walk has played at center in place of Alex Forsyth. I know that's not – it is a lineup change. It is a move that's obviously entirely based upon the injury that took place with Forsyth. If Forsyth is healthy, I think Ryan Walk is still playing right guard. And shoot, maybe TJ Bass is still playing left guard. And we haven't just you know, de you know determined that Bass is the best left tackle. But Walk has played so well. And you mm -hmm. go watch the touchdowns, how impactful he is on that. The Byron Cardwell touchdown – you know, it's George Moore and TJ Baths kind of moving the end off, but it's also Ryan Walk sealing the defensive tackle and creating a massive hole. Um, and that happens throughout these games. So um, credit to both of those guys. Again, credit to the offensive line for finding out some solution. Um, but long-winded way of saying I agree with Tosh. I think TJ Bass moved to left tackle is 
is the most important lineup change and, and one that I think everybody should be really excited about because this is he's only played two games at left tackle now at Oregon and you kind of think there should be some more improvement going forward as he even gets more experience playing there. I think it's a it's it's been instrumental in Oregon having the two best offensive performances in back-to-back weeks, I think, this season, um, at least from a passing Anthony Brown perspective. Because like you said, there has been very little pressure on Anthony Brown, and his blind side is a big reason for that. And that's TJ Bass starting at those at that left tackle position. I do think it's really interesting that they put in George Moore at left guard, um, who had spent the last year and a half at left tackle. Um, I also like Stephen Jones being slotted in at, I think at right guard. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that's another move where Jones has spent a lot of time at tackle and now he's playing right guard. He seems to be doing really well there. I I think there's two things like Eric brought both guys up. I think TJ Bass's move is huge. And then Ryan walk, um, his play if he wasn't like six foot one, mm-hmm. he would be a, a guarantee lock for the NFL. He still might get there in some capacity. Like he is really good. And I don't think people understand that because he's a former walk on from Sheldon high school in Eugene, Oregon. Like when you hear that, Oh, it's just a good, good high school kid. That's going to get here and you know play for a good high school program and we'll walk on. And he's, you know, he's just a walk on. But he's on scholarship, and I, I think you could argue he's their best offensive lineman this year. One thing on walk before you get to Jared, this is just the weird thing with genetics. I think his his dad played at Oregon as an offensive lineman, and I think is like six five. So it's like if he just would have gotten a little bit more height from dad, from Rich Walk, you might be looking at a different situation. He might have been somebody who was like a legitimate three or four star recruit who had other offers coming out of high school, and it's not the walk on story because so much of it is 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 that right? Matt is like. Physically, you stand next to him, and I know you've made this joke, Jared. If you were on campus, you would you would make the joke like I'm Ryan Walk because everybody <laughs> you, you could probably make the point like yeah, I physically am not that different from how he looks. Um, he, he is not somebody who stands out physically, but the way he plays really does. Yeah, he's been uh, a revelation at center ever since Alex Forsyth went down, who hasn't played for a month now, and you know Oregon's offensive line hasn't really struggled since then. But to answer Tasha's question, you know, this is something I kind of picked up on against UCLA because I was it was strange having TJ Bass start at left tackle. Like we haven't seen that all year and during his tenure at Oregon. But he's been great. Uh, this goes to what I was just saying about how you know the wide receivers have now have the the time to get open down the field is because Anthony Brown isn't really getting any pressure. And I think this group with Bass and I really wanted to see it with Jackson Powers Johnson, but sadly he was injured against UCLA. It'll be out a couple weeks. But I think this group, this five, with Dawson Jaramillo, especially when he plays left guard, gives Oregon like their most athletic unit. And you kind of look at that that group and it's like, ah, are they really? But when when you watch them get out in space and pull or on a screen and get out there and try to block, it's a really athletic group. And Ryan Walk is kind of leading the way in terms of like that athleticism. But then you have Big Saul at right tackle, who's been doing a really good job as well. Uh, Oregon ran to both sides of the line against Colorado, which 
is something you haven't really seen in the past. Usually it's just been a run to the left, either with Panay Sewell or whoever's playing left tackle for Oregon the last two years. But TJ Bass at left tackle is really something. And I think that's just another added element on how Oregon can turn the turn turn the page on offense and become a more balanced approach rather than just this rush heavy power O that Oregon has had under Mario Cristobal. Um, an honorable mention for most improved or most important position change is Jeffrey Bossa to linebacker. Yep. He's been significantly better the last two weeks. There are still, you know, some issues in terms of coverage, just in communication, I think, really, and then knowing the playbook as a converted safety. But last two weeks, he's been great. He's been applying a lot of pressure up the middle when asked to, um, just kind of been all around the field. And you know, his his speed, his power, his body type seems like it should be a, a linebacker. Uh, Mario Cristobal has been adamant in press conferences saying that once the season is over, he's going to go back to safety. I don't know. I feel like I kind of want to see him try to put on 20 pounds and see what can happen if they stick him at linebacker. But with his emergence, and I'm not saying he's unbelievable, but just having another – good player at linebacker and not having to run off of Nate Hukliani, who's performed really well as a former walk-on himself and, you know, putting a lot of pressure on Keith Brown to perform. Uh, I think that's a really welcome development of Oregon's defense. Slight, just devil advocate on the boss point of, of keeping mm -hmm. him there. Maybe we should just say like, boy, what's the upside for him playing his natural position where he can True. from a yeah. physical body perspective, stay at that weight and continue to be athletic. Cause it is a bit of a hybrid spot. And then just last offensive line thought I had before we get to the last couple. Um, it's really interesting how Oregon has kind of inverted its guards and tackles. Um, yeah. You, you, yeah. I think Matt made a good point that I wanted to re respond to, but I wanted to let Jared talk first of just like they like we go into the season and Jones and, and more, we think are maybe they're starting right and tackle and left tackle. And now they're both playing guard primarily. And obviously Bass was slated to be left guard. No one saw him as a tackle. Big Solo was somebody who played both guard and tackle last year. It's just kind of interesting that they've settled on a thing here where guys that we thought were guards are playing tackles and guys that we thought were tackles are not playing guard. Um, I, I just think that's really speaks to the way they cross train guys and, and, and honestly just to the versatility they have up front. All right, last couple here. Um, fifth question from at Loop Soup. <laughs> Good name. It seems like a while since the Ducks have had a kickoff slash punt return for a touchdown. What do you attribute this to, and do you think it's time to replace Pittman on punts for someone like Seven McGee, who has a little more quickness <laughs> and wiggle in his game? Thanks. Hashtag Asanado. I think Matt's laughing because we just we had this conversation in the press box on Saturday, or, is there, or did you find a funny online? Uh, just everything. Okay. Uh, Loop Soup is a great is a great handle. Um, the point I will make here is, is like, okay, Micah Pittman is currently, I think, fifth in the Pac-12, by the way. Um in punt return average, which is not awful. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting looking at this. There's only four guys in the conference who have a better than 10 yards per return average. Um, and then Micah's right there with nine yards per return. He's got 11 catches or 11 returns. I don't think anybody would suggest he's been like the most dynamic returner out there. But the reason I think Matt is, is kind of giggling is we talked about this the other day is he has not muffed anything. He's extremely reliable mm -hmm. out there. And as a return guy, you want that because if they made the shift to seven McGee and he muffs a punt in a, in a big situation, people would be going, what a, what a stupid move. Why do you have him out there? I mean, 
who's the comparison we make for for seven McGee is DeAnthony Thomas. And, and again, I don't want to say seven McGee muffs a punt because DeAnthony Thomas had a habit of muffing punts early in his career at Oregon. But it is like a, a thing you have to worry about with a young player of Micah Pittman is one of the most shorthanded guys on the football team. You know, I know he's had issues with maybe a drop here or there during his career. He's always very hard on himself for that. You talk to coaches, though, and, I, and, and players, and they're all like, that guy catches just about everything. That's a huge weapon as in the punt return game. Seven McGee is, is not, I don't think we, at least we don't know, quite the same reliable player back there. Now, the flip side is maybe he does catch one and he sees the vision and he gets a 60-yard touchdown return and you're kind of going like, well, that's a trade-off I'll accept. At the same time, I, I just feel like I, I, I would much prefer the guy who's going to catch the ball every time than a guy who mm-hmm. might not be catching the football. And, and that ultimately is, based on what Mario Cristobal and Bobby Williams have said, the number one priority is is catch the ball, get upfield, and make the right decisions with it. And I think clearly they try, trust Micah more than anyone else on this team to do that. I, I think he shouldn't be replaced. He, he hasn't fumbled at once um, or lost a fumble this season. Um, like Eric said, he's, yeah, he's not the best, but he's also better than at least half the league in return yards. And this goes with the notion that just, we just instantly assume that a four-star recruit is going to be better than a veteran. When Micah Pittman himself was a four-star recruit, was a more higher rated guy than seven coming out of high school. Um, I'm not trying to be super negative, but this just goes where it's just recency bias. Like we're, we're, we're wanting the new thing to, to be in front of our eyes and instead of the old player when the old player was on paper the more talented guy and probably still is the more talented guy. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think if you're, if you're going to make any kind of change in the return game, I would rather see someone else than Michael Wright returning kickoffs only because – how depleted the, the secondary is from an injury standpoint, I would hate to see Mikhail Wright get hurt at that position where they've been decimated by injuries you know, in the, in the defensive backfield. Not because of he's not performing well, but I just don't want to see him get hurt. I mean, yeah, to answer this very very briefly, the answer is no. Mike Pittman should not be replaced. Uh, Seven McGee will have his time in the sun when it comes to returning punts. I can not guarantee it, but I'm – I'm pretty sure that the idea of McGee returning punts is is in Oregon's playbook in the future. And he's too electric of an athlete. Um, To go sort of off Matt's point of of, uh, returning kicks in general, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword because there's so many kicks that, you know, just go for touchbacks. I mean, the the idea in the NFL and the NCAA is to basically eliminate kickoffs. And obviously those are electric plays and everybody kind of lives in the, in the highlight times of DeAnthony Thomas and his punt and kick returns. Doesn't happen nearly as often. The opportunity to do it just aren't there in general. So that's one way to look at it. Um, I would be, I would be more open to seeing seven McGee return kicks than punts just because of Matt's point where it's, you know, they don't need to risk, Michael Wright going back there and getting hurt on a kick return. We saw Steve Stevens get hurt on a punt return last week against Colorado. So those are the type of the those are some of the type of you know player personnel decisions that Oregon will have to make. But Pittman's sure-handed. He can break one off every once in a while. I don't know what else you'd want really. 
Is seven listed as the backup punt returner on the depth chart? By the way, Jared, I'm trying to think back, and I was um, trying to pull that up as I was listening there. I I, I couldn't find it quite quick enough. Um, I don't have can, the depth chart on me. Okay, yeah. fair enough. I was just wondering if that's like pretty clearly that the number two guy, because my my guess is he that seven's certainly in the conversation. But I don't know if it's like inherent that if Micah was replaced, it would be seven either. But all right, yeah. Final question is a recruiting one from at Sheriff Woody five hundred three. What are your thoughts on Cyrus Moss deciding to visit Arizona State instead of Oregon? With the 2022 class lacking top-end talent at the edge position, this feels like an important recruit to land. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. We've talked about for a long time that Moss was one of the most priority recruits, one of the top recruits. It was a surprise to see him at, in Tempe as opposed to Eugene. We we kind of anticipated and heard all week it would be Eugene. Um, Matt, I'll toss it to you since you do the recruiting stuff. What, what, what's, what do you think about this? Does this... Like, is Oregon not in good position now for Cyrus Moss? Do we have any idea of kind of what's going on with him? Um, to go lightheartedly, are you going to turn down a trip to Tempe and the Arizona State campus on Halloween weekend? Probably a good time. <laughs> Probably a pretty Probably. good time. Like, I mean, I'm not concerned. Um, I would be a little concerned if, it was an official visit change, but Cyrus has already taken his official visit. Um, I will be concerned, though, if he doesn't get out here again before signing day. Um, if he openly chooses to go, if this is his only weekend to get to Eugene for another visit before signing day, and he chooses to go somewhere else and just never get back to Eugene, then I'm a little worried. So to answer your, your question, right now I'm not, but there are some things on the back end, you know, where if it plays out a certain way, then yeah, this we could go back and look at it and say that was a turning point in the recruitment where we knew he wouldn't he wouldn't land at Oregon. Oregon did host Nigel Kelly, another yeah. high end edge player out of Florida, and we know he made it out. And I think not to say Moss is not a priority recruit, but if they could get one or both of those guys, like that's certainly, I think, a win for, for Oregon from a recruiting um, perspective. By the way, Micah Pittman and Seven McGee are one and two on the depth chart. I just found it online. So McGee is, is, is the second guy. So it's a important kind of note to close that conversation from earlier. Uh, quick Cyrus Moss thought. Like, yeah, him choosing to go to ASU over Oregon this weekend isn't isn't the best look, but he also, you know, watched ASU get trounced at <laughs> Washington State. And yeah. with all the uncertainty that's around the ASU program, I mean, there's a chance that Herm Edwards doesn't come back. There's a chance that a lot of that staff doesn't come back, especially after what I would consider another disappointing season for them. We'll see. Uh, I, I that's just the, the bottom line. This is recruiting. It's a kid's decision to, you know, 17, 18 year old's decision to go to ASU on Halloween weekend. Like Matt said, hard to turn that down. Um, it's fluid. It's always going to be fluid. So we'll see where, where Moss ends up. I still think Oregon's the favorite. Um, I, I still think that there's a real good chance they get Kelly and Moss to commit to this class. Um, that's that's certainly possible, and they don't get Moss, but they get Kelly. That that's still going to be totally okay. I mean, we're really splitting hairs here, um, and I, I just Oregon's recruiting is is still going at a really good clip. It it stinks that 
Um, Perkins and Barton didn't get to, to campus, but this is still a top 10 class. And this is one that's trending still in that direction where they'll finish with the best class in its school history again. And that can happen with or without Moss. Agreed. Agreed. You'd love to see him on campus. You'd love to see him maybe make a commitment or something, but at the same time, let it play out. Oregon has an incredible class in place. And I will also say, like, even if they do miss at edge, that would be a real disappointment. It's not like there aren't players on this team that are good at that spot. You think about yes. the depth Oregon has had yeah. this year. You could have a – and they do have a Marianne Winston committed currently. So it's not like the in, the inn is totally – you know, there's not like total vacancies. It's not like they're completely empty at that spot. All right, it's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to, to today's show. Look out for Tuesday's update. Uh, we'll have reactions from conversations with Mario Cristobal, Joe Moorhead, and Tim DeRuder. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.